Welcome to Jaipur Bites. I'm your host, Lakshata. We're live from day five of the Z Jaipur Literature Festival. And the session you're about to listen to is called What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape. Sohela Abdul Ali in conversation with Namita Bhandare. very much for being here this morning to a session that is very special to me and i'll tell you why it's because sohaila abdul ali this fabulous woman on my right was my roommate in college back in the day i don't remember the first time sohaila told me about being raped it was just a fact of her life she was from bombay she liked to dance uh her parents grew orchids she had been raped it was just another fact what i do remember is how she described it to me i don't know if you remember this sohaila that this is what you told me you said it was like being knocked down by a bus it's bloody painful it's traumatic it could leave you with lasting injuries but ultimately if you're knocked down by a bus you will get up and continue living and she said being raped was like that it was an awful thing that happened to her but she had kept living she it is she had survived and she had survived extremely well with joy with happiness uh, with all the bad jokes uh, <laughs> that she's capable of and i'm going to tell you why this book is revolutionary and why i think everybody here should buy a copy borrow a copy read it in your library it's revolutionary not because it breaks a traditional silence about rape it's revolutionary not because of the sheer breadth and range of its imagination we've spoken to a lot of rape survivors including male rape survivors but it is revolutionary because at its heart is a fundamentally simple theory one that is almost never heard and that is that rape is survivable that a person who has been raped is capable of and has the right to happiness that that person will laugh again and love again ladies and gentlemen in all the years that we've been talking about rape in india from mathura to jyoti singh we have only spoken about it in terms of its violence its brutality and awfulness and it is awful and we should be outraged when we talk of its aftermath we tend to see complex legal processes unsympathetic police callous doctors judging society but we've never actually given thought to the idea that a raped person is a person is a human being she is not or he is not a zinda lash she is not a bichari or a bichara that this person must be allowed to live a full life unfettered by stigma or the social expectation of how to behave like a victim or a survivor that rape in sohaila's words doesn't have to define you so thank you sohaila for writing this this amazing this very important book and i'm going to start by requesting her to read an excerpt just so that those of you who haven't read the book get a sense of the tone it's very important for you to to get the tone of this book 
Thank you. I just, can you hear? Uh, I just want to say one thing, which is that my jokes are not bad. Um, <laughs> and then, not cute. So this chapter is, it's, I'm reading two little bits from a chapter called Yes, No, Maybe. And it's about consent. Yes means yes, and no means no. If it were that simple, this book would fit on an index card. But here we are, pondering the meaning of consent. It's both really easy and really difficult. Blue Seat Studios created a charming little video. Consent, it's simple as tea. It uses stick figures to illustrate why having sex is like a cup of tea. If you wouldn't force someone to drink tea, why would you force them to fuck? If someone said they wanted tea and then changed their mind when you made it, would you pour it down their throat? And so on. It's a nice tool for children. But sex isn't a cup of tea. If you don't really want a cup of tea, but you drink it because you're afraid you'll offend your host, that's good manners. If you don't really want sex, but you do it because you're afraid you'll offend your date, this happens all too often, that's not quite the same thing. It might not quite be rape. And then again, it might be. What are you afraid your date will do if you say no? A friend of mine went to a brothel when he was a teenager. He had had only a few sexual experiences and wanted to expand his horizons. He went swaggering in and put his money down. A sweet and very young-looking girl took him into a little room. We both sat on the bed, he told me, and I didn't know what to do. She was just looking at me. So I said, take your clothes off. She said, no. So then I asked, I didn't know what to do. Was I supposed to force her? She said, no. I said, okay. Then we lay down next to each other for a while. Then the time was up and I left. This makes perfect sense to me. Yes, he paid for sex. But if she didn't want to take her clothes off, he had no right to rip them off. He could have asked for his money back, but he was correct not to force her. It's obvious to me, but plenty of people might think that once he paid, she was his to do with as he pleased. Being a sex worker doesn't mean you deserve to be raped. Neither does being a spouse. Again, your ability to consent depends on who you are and where you are. And I'm going to read another little chapter. I mean, another little from this chapter. Let us consider and hang our heads in shame about the extremely low bar we set for consent. Consent to what? A man having an orgasm and a woman letting him? A prisoner submitting to a guard to gain protection from further abuse? An old woman with dementia putting up no fight when the nursing home attendant gets handy, handsy? That is such a poor standard. Sex is about pleasure and joy for both, however many are part of the action, willing participants. Let's aspire to this. Great. And so... Thank you. I'm so glad we're talking about consent because that just seems to be a very appropriate place to start talk, discussing a book on rape, to talk about consent. But I want to go back a little, uh, Sohaila, and I'm sorry to have to bring this up, but I want to talk about the time that you were raped. Uh, you were 17 years old, and I want to ask you about the aftermath. What happened uh, when when you came back home? Um, so, 
uh, what happened is that I was 17 years old and we had just moved to America, my family and I. And I had, finished, I had just graduated from high school and I was about to start college in three weeks back in America. So I had come to India with my father for the summer. And one evening I had gone for a walk in, in my neighborhood up a mountain in Bombay with a, with a boy. And we were caught by four men who threatened to kill us and kind of kidnapped us, raped me, wounded us both, robbed us, did the whole thing. And um, then we, they did not kill us because we promised we wouldn't tell anyone. And then we went home. And that's just the backstory. And the aftermath is that my father, he, when I did not come home at night, he went looking for me, didn't find me and came home and found me and then proceeded to be the textbook example of how exactly you should behave if someone you love gets raped. He, he just completely was devastated but didn't show me. I didn't have to comfort him. He asked me what I wanted to do. I think he also just didn't know what to do because my mother was far away. And we just proceeded according to me. So I, it seemed to me that all that stuff about promising them not to tell anyone was just nonsense. And we called the police. But then we kind of got introduced to the Indian legal system in 1980, which meant that they didn't believe me. They thought there was something wrong with me. They thought all kinds of things. And we ended up, we ended up not pressing charges because they essentially said, if I press charges, they would lock me up because I was a minor. So that would mean that I would not be able to go back to America and go to college and also possibly get raped in the remand home. So we decided not to press charges. That just the immediate... Yeah, so you actually lied about not being raped. Yes. So you know how you say that women lie about being raped. I'm actually a person who lied about not being raped because the police actually would not leave the house unless... I wrote something down, so I wrote down on a piece of, on an affidavit that nothing had happened. So you do talk uh, in the book about the price of silence, and yesterday Mary Beard, who you referred to in your book, also talks about how this silence goes back thousands of years to classical literature, where Philomena had her tongue cut off because they didn't want her to yeah. say that she had been raped. And it's ironic that in 2019, this silence continues. So what will it take really to destigmatize, to get people to talk? You know, I, I just find the whole rape thing so horrible and fascinating because for some reason this word makes us behave, it makes us magnify it much more than we have to and make it really huge. But it also makes us make it really small in a way. And I don't know why the silence, because I didn't feel silent. I didn't have that urge to not tell anyone. I just felt like a crime has been committed on me and I'd like some sympathy, please. And so I just put it out there. But I think whatever the reason, the silence is really damaging, not just for women because and, and men who are raped because what happens, I mean, you know, there are people right here in this audience, men and women, who've had it happen, who haven't told a single person. And you know why you haven't? Because A, you might not be believed. B, then it opens up a whole can of worms you have to deal with. All kinds of reasons. You don't want to mess with someone. You're, not, you're scared of someone. So I think the silence serves to keep women down because we don't look for the comfort and services we need. But it does another, even worse thing. It helps perpetuate rape because it, it protects rapists. I mean, why was it that it was so easy for me to say, I won't tell anyone and they believe me? It would be the same now. If we remain silent, rape can continue because there's no accountability. So it's a very dangerous thing. The silence. 
And in fact, the whole notion of not, you know, in, in the press, in the media, uh, we have guidelines which says that you cannot name a rape victim or a survivor. I mean, I, I prefer survivor, but it's, it's really a question of semantics that comes to say, and the reason why you cannot name uh, a person who has been raped is because of the loss of honor. There's a perceived loss of honor because it's, you're never just really raping one person. You're raping the family, your the family honor. And we need to somehow get past the bullshit of this narrative, uh, don't we? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like the person who's really lost some family honor is the rapist because that's really not a nice thing to be an honorable. So, but I think the whole raping of the, the whole naming of the victim thing is complicated because I agree that those are the wrong reasons. But given the stigma, it's tough. I mean, I, I'm a great, great proponent of victims, survivors, whatever you want to call them, having some control over their destinies. And it's, on the one hand, it makes it more stigmatized if you say person X or person Y. On the other hand, if I'm in that situation, I would like to choose whether my name is used or not. So it's tough. In fact, we use the word Nirbhaya to describe Jyoti Singh. And I sometimes think about her and I say that she must have actually been very scared because this is a woman who wanted to live, who had every, a 23-year-old woman who had everything to live for. And then you have this ridiculous martyrdom being conferred on her. She didn't ask to be a martyr. So I don't know how we get this term Nirbhaya, why we continue to use it when her parents themselves, her father herself, he's called her by her name which is Jyoti Singh. Well, the other thing about Jyoti Singh that always gets me uh, is that she's always referred to as the rape victim. But she was murdered. So are we saying that the rape is even worse than the murder? She was, she was raped and she was murdered. So to me, the, that is the worst one. The murder victim. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, I think, I don't mean to sound cynical, but sometimes because we are so, as a society, and this is global, this is not just in India, we're so ready to disbelieve you know, why did she speak up after 30 years? Christine Blasey Ford. Yeah. Uh, you know, why did she speak up now? So there must be some ulterior motive. She must be lying. She's out to get this powerful man, this poor, innocent, powerful man. We just don't want to believe. And I don't know what it will take to get people. And the only rape victim we honor and we recognize is the dead rape victim. I'm sorry if this sounds rude and cynical, but that's the truth. True. It's absolutely true. And the thing is that I don't know, it, it, it's very confusing because then when you speak out, like for instance, people have asked me questions about you know, what I'm going to do next. But the thing is, it's, it's not really my job to end rape. I wrote this book, I talked about it, but there's this onus that goes on survivors because then what are you going to do now about it? But I don't really want to do I'd like to go off and write a book on gardening. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I'm tough because the burden always goes where it shouldn't. So you live with this label of being this brave rape survivor. How do you deal with it? Uh, well, I haven't lived with the label for all my life. I mean, I wrote that first article in India in 1980, and then it sort of vanished, and then I had a whole life. And then the Jyoti Singh thing happened. And after that, every time, because in all these years of, in, of talking about it and not talking about it in India, there still wasn't a single other woman who'd actually come out, a living woman who was an acknowledged survivor. So the press found me and wanted me to say something. And I first avoided this. But then I thought, you know, I've worked on this issue a lot. I've been a counselor. I've written. I'm a writer. 
it's actually a kind of a fantastic writing challenge to tackle such a complex subject, not as a memoir, because that would have been really dishonest, but as a, just as a statement of what I've learned. So I went out there and interviewed lots of people, and I, it, was a, it was a fascinating project. Tell us a little about the process of writing. So I, uh, I'm not the most disciplined person, and I really don't like going to the library and reading long, long books. So I wanted to avoid that. And so when I proposed the book, I made it very clear that it wasn't going to be an academic tome. So I didn't have to include everything. I didn't have to do too much research. And I also, did, I didn't want it to be labeled. I just wanted it to be my book, my own weird little book. So I made my, I made my outline. And then I had, I had a strange kind of research process because for one thing, about a thousand women had written to, and men had written to me after my New York Times article telling me their stories. So I had all those emails. So I contacted some of them and they agreed to talk to me. And I had contacts all over the world. So I found people to talk to. And then I basically just told everyone I knew that I'm writing this book on rape and I saw where that led me. So for instance, I'll give you two examples. One was, I think she's here in the audience, Yasmin, but I'm not sure. Yeah. So my friend Sarah McNally, who owns a bookstore in, in New York, said, oh, you're writing a book on rape? You must talk to my friend Yasmin, who's Egyptian and who's visiting. And she, because she started this amazing movement in Egypt. So I talked to Yasmin, who was part of a sort of a vigilante group that went and saved women in Cairo who were being assaulted by the mob. And she really influenced the book because for the first time I thought I must have a chapter on heroes, on people who rush in to intervene. So that became a chapter. Then when I told my friend Irene in Australia that I'm writing a book, she said, well, you know, I just met this dentist and this dentist specializes in treating rape victims. And that just seemed so strange to me that I then Skyped with the dentist and have a whole chapter on dentistry. So it happened that way. And then I had certain things I knew I wanted to say. I knew I wanted to talk about rape as a choice. I knew I wanted to talk about how society, I feel people talk and don't talk about it. So I had my points, but a lot of things just unfolded. So rape is a choice. Now I know we're not really planning another reading, but maybe you could just share with the audience something that you've written about. Uh, this is a video about the toilet bowls. Oh, I don't know where that is. So you is. remember? No, don't read it, yeah. but just tell them about what was that video. Because it, it's very interesting about rape as a choice. You choose to rape, you know. Yeah, I... I the rapist chooses to rape, not the rape victim. It's never a choice. But what we think of globally, I found, on every corner, we think of that rape is the choice the woman makes. And, you know, we all make choices within a certain frame. Like I could say I chose it because it was either that or be killed. But that doesn't mean I really chose it. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but also the choice because here we, and, and even there, we tend to say, well, she shouldn't have won that or she shouldn't have gone to that yeah. bar as if she chose uh, by wearing that or smoking or drinking that she chose to be raped, but it's never her right. choice. Well, I, I, I think I remember the toilet seat correctly. There was some, I think there was a, there was some public service message, a TV little ad where they were showing how women, you know, women ask for it or they, how absurd this notion is that women ask for it by doing what they do. So there was this guy in a hardware store where, and he was selling toilets and they were all there and some woman walks in and she just sits down one of the display toilets and starts to pee. And he said, what are you doing? She said, well, it's there. I have to go. I have and an he urge. Said, but, you know, these are for the... She said, look, I have the urge. 
and the thing is there, what do you expect? Don't show it in public again. And she pulls up her pants and she walks out. And it was sort of saying that, like, you know, just because I'm a woman and I'm out there, does that mean I'm giving you the license to rape me? It was a very silly video, but it was, I thought it was right on. Yeah, I kind of liked, uh, I liked the fact that it's over there. Um, you spoke about your father as a middle-aged Muslim man. But the word, your words were, of course, textbook model for how to behave as a survivor. I want to ask you, if somebody comes, to, comes up to me, a daughter, a niece, a friend, an acquaintance, a stranger, and says, I was raped, how should I respond? I have a chapter on that. So this is, this is called the Abdul Ali Guidelines for Saving a Rape Survivor's Life. Um, I say she, but the guidelines apply equally to all genders. So this is, this is it's very simple. Be horrified. But don't fall off your chair so that she has to take care of you. Believe her. No ifs, ands, or buts. Just believe her. Let her take the lead. If she wants to talk, okay. If she wants to be quiet, okay. If she wants to cry, okay. If she wants to joke, okay. If she wants to throw things, okay. Ask her what she wants. No need to guess. Encourage her to get help. Medical legal, physical, mental, but don't force it. Don't ask for details, but let her know you're open to listening if she wants to elaborate. Don't question her judgment. Let her frame it the way she wants, in the words she chooses. Don't try to understand and analyze. Just be there. Remember, this is the same person you knew before you knew she was raped. Treat her the same. Something terrible has happened to her, but she is the same person. She might also need reminding of this. And last but not least, I could give no advice better than Kathleen Moran. Don't be a dick. <laughs> Let's go back to family, right? To your father, uh, who was an exceptional man. I was lucky to have known him and loved him. Uh, but let's just talk about families in general and the role of fathers um, and parents, really, in bringing up sons and daughters. Uh, you, know, you, you talk about a rape culture. What is that rape culture and how do families per perpetrate it and also help in countering it? Rape culture, I think, is just it's a common term. And I, the way I would define it is it's kind of a collection of all the little attitudes and actions we have that, create an atmosphere in which rape and sexual abuse is sometimes even encouraged, but at least allowed. And it begins at the family level. It begins exactly the minute you get, you know, the minute you're born. We treat boys differently. We treat girls differently in every culture. There's the whole, I'll tell you a story. When my, when my daughter was in third grade, there was, um, she came, she came, she didn't like going on class trips. And so when I asked her why, she said there was a little boy behind her. And every time they went, they had their positions in line. And he was behind her. And every time they went anywhere, he used to pull her hair. And she said, sometimes he blows on my neck. And it used to really bug her. And she's very shy. She couldn't say anything. So I went and talked to the teacher. And the teacher said, oh, yeah, he has a huge crush on her. That's why. So it's fun. So now, how is this okay? No, we have this assumption that if a little boy likes a little girl, the way he shows it, because he's so sweet and awkward, is to, you know, hit her, pull her hair, blow on, blow on her neck. So where, when he grows up and goes to college and he asks someone to 
go on a date and she says, no, what's he going to do? Is he going to think it's his right to then hurt her? So I think this is just a small example of the way we just, we assume that we are built differently. And we assume that it's our job to keep the guys in line. We also assume that men can't control themselves, which frankly, I think is a huge disservice to men because men are better than that. You know, there's this whole idea that, you know, especially with, even with sex, that if you're in the middle of having sex, you can't stop. You know, if you're a man, you can't stop. And I have this example in my book of that I asked men, suppose you were there, you're having hot sex with someone you're really attracted to, and your grandmother walks into the room and looks at you through her glasses. Now, could you stop? You probably could. So this whole myth of the ravening, raging man who can't control himself is just nonsense. Just an excuse. So I think it's all part of rape culture where we, you know, that whole attitude that men can get away with it, that women are not supposed to, that pleasure is not for women, it's only for men. That's part of it too. I, have, I talked to a woman who's a sex educator in schools who said, you know, sex education and rape education go together. And that's a really tricky concept because you never want to say that rape is sex because it's not. But if you teach people that sex is for the pleasure of men and not for women, then you're sort of getting into really shady ground there. So in many million ways that I think do a huge disservice to men as well as women, we perpetuate this culture. Wait, wait, I'm a little confused. So you're okay. saying rape is not sex? No. Rape is a sexual act. It involves violence and power. The physical act might be the same. But in my idea, sex is a joyful, consensual thing. When it's used as a weapon, it's rape. But are you then talking also about the use a very popular feminist term, intersection, the intersection of rape and power, rape and race, or in India, rape and caste. Yes, absolutely. I feel like rape is one of those things, like, like many crimes or many things in, that's partly why it fascinates me, not only because it happened to me and I care, but it's sort of like a flashpoint for all these different things. For instance, in the US, there's this myth that black women that black men rape white women, whereas actually statistically it's more likely and historically white men have raped more black women. In India, you can't really talk about, in India, our flashpoint is caste. We're a very caste stratified society here and rape, when, when there's rape within caste, that plays in. So yeah, there is an intersection, I think, you know, especially when we have this notion of honor and we Absolutely. In it. fact, if you remember uh, in Haryana, this is in 2012, just before Jyoti Singh yeah. happened. There was a spate of gang rapes. Uh, and interestingly, all the victims were Dalit. And all the perpetrators or the accused were, were upper caste men. And this is because these upper caste men could not dare to rape women from their own caste because they would be ostracized by the Kap Panchayats. But somehow raping a Dalit woman was okay because, you know, wo to chora hai, wo to karega hi. you know, that, that was the... You know, it's very, it's very complicated when we talk about this because that's, it's all true and I've just said it, that it's at the intersection of race and caste and rape. But at the same time, it's really important to remember that most, the vast majority of rape actually takes place between two people who are equal. You know, so if you're a, you know, if you're whatever caste you are, you're more likely to be raped by someone from your own or caste. Or your husband. Yeah, or your husband. So, you know, again, we, it's a way to keep women down when we say, stay safe, stay at home, because fact is you're much more likely to get abused within the walls of home, family, friends. So, you know, it, I say this particularly because my rape doesn't fit this stereotype. 
but we have to remember that when we do this analysis absolutely and i think one of the problematic things that we have not really spoken about is that the narrative that emerged post jyoti singh uh post the december 2012 was rapists are those evil men out there and public spaces whether they're buses or their movie halls are really dangerous so you know because we want to protect you because we love you because you're our daughters you're safe at home so we kind of pushed the narrative inadvertently pushed women back into the home that they were not any safer in fact they were more vulnerable correct yeah i think so I and mean, i wasn't here for that but i do think that even in you know even in the, in the states where i live there is very much this thing of keep yourself safe don't dress like that and it's dangerous because it's unrealistic but it's also dangerous when after you've been raped i mean we you know we are we sort of have the stereotype in our heads of in india it's so terrible but let me tell you i interviewed for this book women from europe us everywhere and every almost every the, i have a chapter in there called what did you expect and that happened because the first four or five women i interviewed all had a story of telling a mother a father a brother a friend somebody about what happened to them and the first thing was what did you expect you were at the night club you were drunk you were dressed like that you were out at night so it's it's you know it's so rape is sex but is not sex we we uh... well i want to i want to expand on that yes. because it's still looking confused I, i am confused and i and i sometimes get confused too so the thing is that what i we as feminists in college we had we were really clear about saying that rape is not sex and it's true rape is not sex but the fact is you can't talk about rape without talking about sex because it is a sexual act of violence and so in some ways we put it out there and we don't acknowledge that it's it's a kind of perversion of something that's actually acceptable so it it is hard to it is hard to define it but i think we need to now we are advanced enough as a civil as civilizations that we are able to now grapple with these concepts we it was important to go around saying yes means yes and no means no and rape is not sex because it's not but the fact is it's a sexual act it's just that violence and power and domination and lack of consent are added and that makes it violent so i don't mean to confuse but we do have to kind of put all this stuff into our heads and throw so it around so let's come back to this chapter the, the excerpt you started with which was mm-hmm. consent and you say yes doesn't always mean yes yeah and can you explain that well for instance it depends on why you're saying yes take me the extreme example of saying yes to these strangers who were armed yeah i could have said no and i could have died so did i consent not in my mind but possibly in the police people's mind because what was i doing there you know i wasn't weeping i wasn't upset i had wounds that was the only thing they could see my wounds but i could have gotten those wounds anyway so if they didn't believe me how much are they li- likely to believe a woman who says her husband raped her so you know what are you consenting to look at look at the me too movement with all these hollywood people saying that you know the casting the whole casting couch thing so do you consent what is the consent when you're afraid that your whole career will be scuppered if you don't if you say no it's very complicated it's not just yes and no it's like the actor uh, shakti kapoor who was caught in a sting operation some years ago and he's he actually yeah, yeah. appropriately enough plays a villain yeah. in most uh, roles and he told the bbc in a bbc made a documentary uh, on the casting couch because he was caught in a sting operation admitting you know being guilty of the casting couch 
and he he said something that just stuck with me uh, and has stayed with me all these years he says he says listen he said listen yaar nobody here is getting raped these girls they come if they don't like it they can go back so <laughs> you know is that a choice so if you want a career in bollywood it is understood that you have to in his mind that you are consenting to whatever else comes with it which is ridiculous and you know the other thing about the whole sex rape thing is that i it occurred to me the other night when we were talking in delhi that we say we don't want to confuse rape with sex but what we often do is confuse sex with rape like you look you know what do you what, what do you call a marriage where somebody is 13 or 14 years old and married off to an older guy and they go off for their wedding night is that sex or is that rape so we we do need to talk about them together actually, because we often confuse the two absolutely german greer spoke about it yesterday and she says well you know a woman who has like a million things to do she wakes up at has to wake up in the morning and fill the water and she has a list of chores and what she going to do so she says okay let's just fake an orgasm and get it over with you know so is she practical or is she you know so it's these labels become kind of complex and there's no nuance when we talk about rape yeah and then the whole other thing is that the nuance needs to be there and when you point to someone and say she looks fine she can't possibly it can't be that bad so in this book i talk about this i call it the lose lose rape conundrum because if you actually look fine and say you're happy then you then the people then you go back to the age old thing it's not such a big deal yeah it's just sex get over it but if you're destroyed then you know you're destroyed you have no right to a life so i i have this thing i was on an interview in in america on the pbs about my book and i was talking about and later on someone tweeted i don't think she was raped so i just didn't know whether to be insulted or complimented but the, it's part of the whole thing of like you know we have a certain vision if you're fine that means you want rape no big deal or you didn't mind or it was okay but if you're not then you know then there's nothing to do because you're a hopeless broken being and i just want to say with this book that it's not that way i mean if there if everybody was either broken or absolutely fine you have a completely different society than we have so i started introducing your book by saying that why i found it revolutionary because my my takeaway from it that was my interpretation that rape is survivable that is the three words are the most important message that i take from the book but what is it that you are trying to say what's your thesis i have a bunch of thesis but i think that one of the main ones is the one i said before is that we have to understand that rape is a choice and stop treating it as something that happens it's something we have allowed to create and flourish in our society and the people who rape it who do the raping make a choice and there are many men who don't make that choice i also really wanted to i really wanted to kind of take the take the pressure off the conversation because it's such a fraught subject so which was one of my biggest struggles in writing the book is to attempt to not make it too because too light because i i i'm kind of a light hearted person and it's a heavy subject and i wanted to present it in a way where i wasn't bringing everybody down by pushing all this weight on it but i also didn't want to make light of it and offend survivors by saying it's no big deal because it is a big deal so i think my message is just that no and there's another message too which is that we now in this day in 2019 i mean me too started after writing the after i started writing the book so for a moment there i thought i don't have to write the book cuz suddenly it's a hot topic but i feel like 
we kind of think we are talking about it, but we're not really talking about some of the things that matter. If we just have people coming out there saying this happened to me or this didn't happen to me or he did or he didn't, we're still not really exploring bits of it that don't come out in the light. Like, for instance, my chapter on dentistry, okay? So if you think of a trauma that a rape survivor has later in life, in the West, what I've often heard is that, well, it must be really, it must affect you sexually later. So, okay, that's true. Many people are affected sexually later. But there's a, it's like, rape is like any other trauma. It has all these other different ways it can affect you. And one of them is when you go to the dentist. For some people, going to the dentist after being raped or after being at war, after being tortured, is really, really traumatic because you're lying there. Some, you're, you've lost control. Someone's there. There's a masked guy next to you. And so we, we need to open our minds a little bit to what people go through and not expect them to behave a certain way or be traumatized in some ways and not in others. And this really applies to all trauma. You know, you have flashbacks at odd things. You have, you deal with grief in so many ways. You might not cry at someone's funeral, but later on you think of them at some odd time and you lose it. So we just have to give that space that we don't, to open it up so that someone who has been raped, we don't, we don't put them into a little box of, this is how you're supposed to behave, and if you're not, then you're kind of crazy. So I wanted to say that. Yeah, and it's kind of ironic because rape is about loss of control, about someone doing to your body something you have not agreed to have yeah. done to. And then after rape, there still is loss of control because whichever camp, whether liberal or whichever camp you're in, you're, you're never doing the right thing. Like the lose-lose yeah. conundrum, right? Yeah. Because you're not behaving either tormented enough or you're too light-hearted. And in fact, that was one of my questions about the book also, that is it perhaps too light-hearted and were you afraid? But I think you've, you've addressed that. Uh, but since you did bring up uh, Me Too, I, mm -hmm. I want to take you a little bit further. And talking again about silencing, you know, the silencing that happens with rape. I think we've seen that in the sense, and, and I'm talking about Me Too India, and I, I understand that you were in New York, you haven't followed the, the nuances of what happened in India in October, where women... Uh, just came forward using social media and just just telling the most appalling stories. And in the early days, uh, there was a response. There was a lot of men admitted to what they had done. Uh, companies were disbanded and there was some action. And then as time went on, we saw a shocking rehabilitation. You know, a, a, a man accused of sexual harassment by 20 women, including rape by one of them suddenly got a column, you know, to write in a mainstream newspaper. And so, so it's, it's very confusing. So you have, on one hand, you have older feminists saying, we believe in due process. We must follow due process. And of course, as a civilized society, I would also say that we must follow due process. But due process is broken and has been broken since 1980, since your own rape. And so what do we do? Do we name and shame? Do we have anonymous this? How do we deal with, how do we break the silence around, around Me Too and sexual harassment? I don't know about how we break the silence because I feel like we're trying all different ways. But I do know that there's this prevailing idea that it's all so terrible that we're going to have lynch mobs because all these women lying about rape. But I have yet to actually see an instance of that. I've seen many more instances in the West and here of accused people just getting away with it. So I'm not that worried about the lynch mob. I, I haven't seen it. But I, I mean, to me, the only way to break the silence is 
the way that you're comfortable. If you're a person who's been violated, if you feel like talking about it, talk about it. But I don't think the responsibility should lie with the people who've already been hurt. I think the responsibility lies with all of us to acknowledge that there's a culture where due process is broken, to agree that rape is a crime, and to, to, to call out sexist, awful behavior when we see it. That's where it begins. Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites, a podcast produced by Lonchora in association with the Z Jepper Literature Festival. 